Exodus 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to that place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm just hearing sounds in my mind, too. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> well, uh, it's good to be with you. Thank you. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, we're in the fifth Sunday here, 24 of what we call ordinary time, which is this time, you know, during so much of the, the year there, we're kind of telling the story of Christ's life, he who is the fullness of time, going from his incarnation all the way through his resurrection, the gift of the Spirit. And as we get into this time of year, we're thinking about how now Christ in the fullness of time incorporates all of our lives into it, all of our moments. And I think one of the beautiful things that we're doing here during ordinary time is going through this Exodus story, this story that tells of God's salvation, not just for me or for you, but of all creation, the way that God 
is calling all things up into his life, into this one story. I know for me it doesn't always feel like it's so unified, so gathered together. Um, this Sunday before this one here, I was away from you all, as you heard from Pastor Jeff. Uh, I was sick. And um, especially before Sunday, I was, like I said, kind of on my way up. But those couple days before, during the midweek, I was kind of down and out. There wasn't too much I was doing at all. The only thing that I could reflect on on how tough it was to be sick. And then what I really realized is it isn't all that tough necessarily, at least with my particular experience of it, to be sick. It's really tough for me to be still. There's something about the way that my life works. There's so many things on a day-to-day basis that I kind of know that I have to do, either as a to-do list or a task list, or if I'm not doing things that I specifically feel like I have to do, there's so many other things in my life that I want to do, that I'm just kind of trying to move through all those things. Nobody really plans to be sick, right? You don't plan to just have your life stop for a few days. And as it did, like I said, I, I think I realized that it calls into question the very substance of my life. Right? Without having all those things, without being able to do any of those things, it feels as though my life is ebbing and flowing away from me, that it's just emptying out before me. I did listen to the service last week, even though I wasn't able to be here, and I know one of the questions that stuck with me was the question that um, one of the middle schoolers, Jeff was talking about his experience there at middle school, and he said that one of the middle schoolers who was there asked the question, how do I know that God is real. How do I know that God is real? And I think it's a question that every time I have the opportunity, I'm up here at some level, in some way, I'm trying to answer that question. I'm not sure that somebody would be able to tell the answer to that question by looking or asking me what my to-do list is. Maybe they would see spiritual things on that list, but there are things that as easily could be off that list as I could choose to not do, as to do. And if there is this case that there is this living God, this God who is real, it should seem to be something that is inescapable, essential. Pastor Jeff and I at times have talked about some of the similarities, some of the differences. Between the world that we live in now, just to always remember that the way that so much of our culture thinks about things isn't the only way to do it and the way that people would have thought about things perhaps even just a few centuries ago. One of the major differences between our life, our world now, and the way that things might have been a little bit before is that in a world that was pre-modern, you were kind of with people from cradle to grave. And one of the things that can be difficult about that is that you saw people in all their circumstances and all the ways that we do in our lives. You could see them in health, but also in sickness. You could see them in youth, but also as they aged. You could see them when they were poor, maybe also when they were doing well. And while there's a certain difficulty in being surrounded with the fragility, our mortality on a constant, on a daily basis, the one advantage to that is that all the people then could see the edges and the seams of the world around us. They could see that there was life that flowed into it, but that none of us, not even me, as I kind of get older and older, it always seems like, again, life is sort of flowing out of me. But that opens us up to then the bigger question, which is where is all this life, if I can't even sustain the life that I'm given, where is all this life coming?
come from. It was a little bit more obvious at that time that there was something that transcended the world as we knew it. The job of the pastor, unironically, in that world at that time was to show people that exactly that transcendence, that thing from which all life flowed, that is what we're being called into more deeply. That when we encounter sickness, when we encounter death, when we encounter those unfulfilled longings and desires that we have in our lives, really we're trying to be pulled deeper into participation into friendship with God. That somehow there was this one answer, that Sunday school answer to everything, which was Jesus. The world that we live in now is a little bit different than that. Reading a little bit this week, um, obviously while I was gone, actually over kind of the holiday weekend there, there was a shooting over in downtown Sacramento about some of the shootings more recently that have happened in and around our country. Read a little bit about the water crisis. I was surprised to find out that 47% of the world, at least for a month out of the year, lives in what they call water insecurity, meaning there might not be enough water for the population. Reading about all the, it sounds like there's quite a few homeless encampments right now downtown. People would have a lot of different potential solutions to these issues, maybe. Maybe we need more shelters. Maybe we need more mental health services. Maybe we need greater gun regulations, or maybe we need more tolerance. In a world where you no longer have God as the answer, the transcendent, and trying to attain to that which is not fleeting, that which lasts and which endures, the thought is maybe if we just get greater quantities of what we already have, will be better, right? One scoop of ice cream is good, three must be superior. The two-day vacation is good, why not two weeks? And so, so often I find myself, at least when I'm not sick, dodging and darting between my task list, between these crises that arise, between these trips I go on, between family gatherings, and hoping that God will just kind of zap in there in these clutch moments. My life can sometimes feel almost like it's a pop-up book, where you turn the page, and every page there's a different landscape that I'm trying to find and see where God fits somehow in all of this. And I think it's precisely in that, that God encounters us here in Exodus 3 with Moses. As we begin these verses, we once again open on the protagonists of this story, which are the sheep. Course. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. But everywhere that you go in this story, and I don't think it's incidental to the story that the scriptures want to tell us, somehow the sheep are always there, whether it's Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, all the important moments, even as you go down later in the line, which just begs the question that the story is maybe a little bit bigger than about me or about Moses or about the people of Israel. says that Moses is out shepherding his father-in-law, Jethro's flock. I love the uh, NRSV here's reading of it. Is he's out beyond the wilderness. Like, there's, there's where, you know, obviously Midian and the sheep normally are, and then there's the wilderness, and then he's somewhere out farther beyond past that, right, being past the edge of the world. But as Moses is out there, I can only imagine, with sheep as his companions, maybe reflecting, 
a little bit on what his life is and what it was. But he has time to think about how at one point in his life he was a prince of Egypt. He was a son of Pharaoh. That he would have at one point held a rod of power before whom all would have had to bow. And now he just holds a shepherd's staff. That at one time he would have had authority over nearly everybody he met. And now he only has authority over these sheep with him. That at one point in his life he could have had all the comforts the world had to offer. Now he's out in the middle of a barren wilderness. Maybe most importantly, once he would have had this place that he could have called home, that he could have felt like he belonged to. And now he even names his son Gershon, that he's a stranger, an alien, a sojourner in a foreign land. How odd it must be for Moses as he's out there feeling as though it's been a turn of the page and this life that could feel so real that it was just there is so irrelevant to everything that he is at this point. And it's in this moment that he gets to what the text says is Horeb, the mountain of God. It's a question that I would at least ask, I don't know if any of you would, as you come through and see this story about where and when and exactly how does this mountain get its name, the mountain of God. I think precisely in the brilliance of this story, because now we've come to the center of that story. Now we've reached its foundation. It just kind of pulls us in beyond maybe even my questions or beyond my explanation or beyond my justification. Moses, as he encounters and he comes across the mountain of God, he sees a bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. There's something about fire that is a wonderful image for life. It's so lively, it dances, the flames are always kind of in a constant state of motion. It's very energetic, but it's also very fleeting. Fire sweeps through an area, it burns up everything, and then it itself is out, it's extinguished. Like a flame of fire, like a wick that's quenched, so also are our lives. But as Moses comes upon this burning bush, the fire keeps burning. Its energy keeps going. Without consuming the bush, it seems to have this inexhaustible supply of life to it. Charity begins to tell the story that he's encountering as he stumbled upon this mountain of God, of a God who is not fleeting, of a God who endures. God isn't just one more character or actor in the many stories of our world, one more thing in the many things that are around us. As though we have a thousand things, or I have a thousand things in my life, and just to add on God, here Moses is encountering the storyteller himself. Here Moses is encountering the one who has um, made the setting and the characters and all the plot lines. As Moses draws near to this burning bush, he's told to take off his sandals for the ground upon which he's standing. This is before, which we'll get to, the giving of the covenant there and the tabernacle. But that word holy should still jump out, of, out at us. Of course, it's made holy by the presence of the holy God. I wouldn't have to tell all of you that holy means that it's set apart, it's distinct. And importantly here, that word that it tries to convey or get at is that this isn't just a, a differentness or a distinctness of 
that's numerical or quantitative. Again, here is God just amongst the many other things that exist in this world. It's a qualitative difference. This is the God who reorders all things. This is the God who has made all these things, to whom all difference and all distinction have given rise. In this moment, as Moses is before the burning bush, God confronts the ordering of the world from my perspective, from the perspective of Egypt, from the perspective of sin. As I told you there, when I'm sick, life can feel like it's so many pieces and fragmented, and I'm just trying to gather up all the pieces together and by my sheer power of will make something that would allow me to feel complete or to feel whole. Interestingly, as you open the story in Exodus, you see that logic working its way out in the empire of Egypt. There is something in them that is trying to accumulate, to possess, to have, and to gain something they don't have. As you open the story, they're building store cities. This idea of being beyond my limitations or my dependence on God's daily provision, if I can just store up enough stuff, then maybe... I won't experience lack in my life. We open on the story of them building these grand temples to cover over those seams and those edges of life. Maybe if we can send all sickness or all famine or all disease or trust that the priests that are there have control over those things, we won't have to be subject to them. This is where when you have a task list that you can't accomplish, you build an army of slaves so that you can set taskmasters over them and make sure running day in and day out, those tasks are getting done without fail. This is where, of course, literally, they build pyramids, these gigantic monuments to cover up death itself, to perpetuate this myth that if I can just collect all of these pieces, all of these things, I can spin this illusion that I am sufficient, that I am whole, that I am living, complete. God, as he comes to Moses here in the burning bush, who can, who can test precisely that myth and that lie. Because the God who appears in this burning bush doesn't lack anything, doesn't need to have, doesn't need to possess, doesn't need to achieve. That fire burns without consuming. The story isn't a story about coming from nothing and then to something and then to everything. Rather, What's so incredible about this God is that this God already has everything. This God is infinite life and infinite love. And instead of trying to get more, pours self out so that we might live. The story that Moses is confronted here is of a God who is alone, able to see the whole picture. And take what looks like they're the insignificant and scattered fragments of life. And turn them into the axis upon which all salvation Turns, the salvation story turns. As God here comes to Moses, Moses, I think me, maybe all of us, are being converted into this truer story, the story that God is telling. I can appreciate how Moses here, as he's confronted with this story that God tells, asks questions. What do you mean? What do you mean, God, that you're going to send me now in this moment for your people? 
I had it all. God, once I was a prince of Egypt, once I could have set that people free, once I had that power, what do you mean by coming to me now after it's all been taken away, after I've lost it all, after I'm a shepherd out in the wilderness? Why do you come to me here and now? I ask the same question times in my life. God, it seems like I had this perfect opportunity, this perfect moment. All of my gifts had aligned, my opportunity for ministry and for for evangelism, and it all collapsed inward. And now you want to come to me. Now you want to ask me to serve you and to continue to do ministry. You're too little and too late. I can imagine the people of the Hebrews, of course, when ultimately Moses does go, asking this very same question. Where was God when Pharaoh was casting all of our children into the Nile? What do you mean God is coming now to set us free? Why, if this God in this story is being told, did God not come earlier? What do you mean God wants to rescue us? We had to go through the pandemic. What do you mean that God was here when we had to go through all the cruelty that we saw witness in the 20th century between the wars that were fought? What do you mean when the shootings are going on downtown? What about this promise of life and joy and peace that seems to be so sucked out of people that they either end their own lives or the lives of others or both? Moses asked these questions for all of us in this moment as he encounters God in that burning bush. And God gives us the answer by giving us his name. I am who I am. Say, I am has sent you. And what God shows us is that this story that I want to tell, this pop-up book on every page that's different, and I'm always trying to find God somewhere in there as I'm reading it, I've been reading it all wrong. Because it's not bound by my birth and by my death, or by our birth or by our death. The real story here is Moses comes to God into that burning bush that he's encountered, that he's being converted into, that God is seeking to convert me into. Is of a story that actually begins first and foremost with God. Goes through God and to God. I love that in the Gospels, there's this moment where the Sadducees come to Jesus and they have this question for him. Jesus does kind of a midrash on this passage here. They ask him this question about a woman who's had seven husbands. Her point is, is that the whole idea of the resurrection is ridiculous because how could she be married to all of them? And she would have, according to Leverite law. Jesus has this wonderful response. I think we've talked about it before. I think Tammy said this is sassy, Jesus. He says, is not this the reason that you are wrong, that you know neither the power nor the scripture of God? It's always been my goal at some point to contextually use that in a conversation. My life will be complete. But he explains that we're not given in marriage or marry in the life to come. And then he says, and about the raising of the dead, have you not read in the book of Moses, that God says to Moses, I am the God of Isaac, of Abraham, of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all things live in God. And I think Jesus here, as he gives this midrash on what this passage means, already says something that's implicit as God is speaking to Moses. That this story that seems to be so many disconnected fragments of lives come and gone, of tragedies lost, of unfulfilled hopes and dreams, that God holds all of these things together. They live and they live eternally in God. 
God alone is able to bring this whole story, not just about these pieces, but all into a harmony, into a unity, and into an eternal life in God. As Moses comes here, he sees that his life has actually truly begun in this moment as he encounters God face to face. And it's a beginning that ripples out into the past, into the present, and into the future. God is able to hold all things, whether that's sheep or Pharaoh or Egypt or Moses or Midian or Jethro or Abraham or Canaan or the mountain of Horeb or Cordova Church of the Nazarene, all together in this one vision, in this one hope, in this one story. Not through force or coercion, but through a love that exceeds all of our limitations. And for Moses and for us, it doesn't matter if you're a prince of Egypt or a shepherd, if you're in the lonely margins of existence. It's about trying to encounter God who is already at the center of that story. And then being sent, once we live in that center, to the very ends of our lives and the ends of creation, to tell it again and again. I think the two things maybe that most confront me as I thought about this text this week, neither of them are revolutionary, um, but, but I think maybe speak to me and I hope maybe speak to you here. First, that I, I feel like this text calls us to it, invites us and imparts in us this spirit of patient endurance. Do any of you know how old Moses was when he came to encounter God in the burning bush there? Ooh, see we got some people. I heard, I heard, the, I heard the, the numbers there. We'll, we'll get it here in uh, uh, a chapter or two. It'll say Moses is, he's 80. He's 80 years old. You traditionally kind of have and some ways, Moses lives through the wilderness just about to the end of it, so he lives to be about 120. And traditionally, it doesn't ever say it in the text, but people will usually say just because it'd be nice if it was a 40, 40, 40 thing. <laughs> he lives the first 40 years in Egypt, and then he's 40 years in the desert, and 40 years with Israel on the way to the promised land. You don't, you don't get that, but he is 80 years old when he encounters God, when he encounters the center of all things in the beginning. There is something that before he is, of course, living the very story that we can see God has set up from the beginning that he'd be a savior and a deliverer. But it's only when he encounters God that he lives that in a more direct, in a more intentional fashion. I think what's so extraordinary about it is it's only God who ultimately can open our eyes and our ears to be able to see our story, not from our own perspective, but from God's perspective. There's something, I don't know, impulsive in me that always believes that I can map out the story of God and how exactly I fit into all that. That's why I have the to-do list. Because I'm doing it. Gotta go out and get it. But what's so beautiful about the story of Moses is that the story of God is so often what God is doing while well-intentioned people like me are out chasing their own designs. I think the invitation, and maybe, 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 Part of what is so formative for Moses as he's out there with the sheep in the mountain of God is that there's a whole lot of stillness and a whole lot of silence that allows him to be able to encounter the God who desires to speak to him out of that bush. I think maybe part of the gift that we have here is Christ promises to meet us in a place like this is that encoded into so much of our liturgy is stillness and silence, at least if we let it be. Before the service begins, even as we get going, even during our times of prayer, 
even as we come to this table, as we pray together, while we're coming out. Maybe even right now, you're just kind of tuning me out, and there's a stillness and the silence in that moment. I think that's the space in which God desires to meet with us and to speak to us. Second, and I hope that you hear this also in this text, is that God isn't alone speaking to Moses in that burning bush. I think God is speaking to every one of us as well. We've all been consecrated. We've all been commissioned. That as Moses was called to take the people of Israel from slavery to Egypt, so God is calling and commissioning us to take his people from slavery to sin into the freedom of, son, of life in the Son. And I think the conversion, perhaps, if we're able to hear that name of God, I am who I am, is the conversion from the question of why me now, why God? To how, God, have you been so good? How have you been so faithful? And how can I find a way to serve you in this context? Christ promises to be here in these moments with us and through the life of this church to help us live into his mission and into his ministry. Like Moses in the wilderness with that flock of sheep, now Christ, who is the good shepherd, comes to us here at this table as one who cares for us and feeds us in the wilderness that can feel like our world is. And again, like the very burning bush out of which God speaks to Moses here, God speaks to us out of this cup and out of um, this bread, which is something that's eaten and drinking, which is something that gives us life but is not completely consumed. Our Lord is always and every week abounding just like that fire. And we do all this to be able to enter into a communion, into a spirit of abiding in him that will allow us to see and to hear his calling placed upon us to be for the world his body. Shall we pray together? Lord our God, we're grateful this morning to hear this wonderful passage, this wonderful story of how you called Moses, set into motion a plan, a story of salvation for your people, and also a way that ultimately you would bless the entire world by establishing your exodus through your son to lead all creation back to we pray that as we prepare to come to this table, we might indeed receive that calling from slavery to freedom and to a mission, Lord, that is bigger than all of us, to a story that is bigger than all of us, to a story that exceeds this place that extends to all corners and reaches of the world. We entrust ourselves to you and we ask in this faithfulness that you might continue to shape us to be the people that we already are. Ask this all in the name of your Son.